Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week I talked to Ken Chapman and Tony Orlowski, authors of the new book, Safety Beyond the Numbers, A Path to Principled Leadership. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Ken Chapman and Tony Orlowski, authors of Safety Beyond the Numbers, A Path to Principled Leadership. Uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Good to join you, Jeff. Good to have you here. And I um, wanted to start off by, uh, before we kind of start talking about the book, have you uh, tell me about yourselves. Uh, so, Ken, why don't you start us off and tell me a little bit about your uh, your background? Uh, sure. Uh, I began my uh, professional life as a university professor, uh, teaching industrial organizational psychology, and uh, very quickly realized it wasn't going to be the kind of experience I was looking for. So I uh, started a consulting firm uh, focused on providing industrial psychology and behavioral science services to uh, business and industry. And here we are 42 years later. There you go. Tony, how about you? Yeah, I was, uh, my uh, formal education is as an engineer and uh, I spent the first uh, a few years of my career in engineering, and uh, and then transferred uh, over to management. I, I obtained my MBA, and uh, I've been in uh, uh, heavy industrial uh, management and heavy industrial industry uh, ever since for 26 plus years. Excellent. So let's talk about the book. Um, I guess. Uh, We'll start off. Why don't, uh, why don't you, uh, one of you guys sum it up for me in uh, in uh, fifty words or less? Most 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 safety uh, programs today, in, at least in, in my experience, uh, are, are heavily based on compliance, and you know, and compliance is is really the basis of it is doing what someone else has told you to do or asked you to do. Um, and it also tends to, to put uh, safety in terms of, of numbers and statistics. And so, to, if, you know, if I were to have a simple summary of the book, it's to go beyond what someone else is asking you to do and ask you to take ownership of it yourself and think about what you want for safety. And also to realize that your responsibility goes beyond, uh, you know, just managing numbers and statistics. But these are these are human lives. These are people. Uh, that you're affecting. All right. Uh, how did the book sort of come together? How did you guys decide to uh, to work on this? Uh, Ken and I have been working together. Uh, the organization that I work for had been um, uh, looking for ways to improve our, our safety program and uh, stumbled across uh, Ken and uh, um, the facility that I had responsibility for was um, – chosen as as the trial uh, to see uh, see if it was something that we wanted to pursue with them and so we spent quite a bit of time uh, working on, on the facility that I was at and talking about things and things we needed to improve and so um, you know that those discussions began to to turn more into discussions of uh, you know other experiences we had, had other places other companies that he had worked for and his experiences perspectives from there and then I would share you know, my perspectives on, on uh, places that I had worked at and been part of and worked in. And so we, we 
kind of got to the point where we realized that, uh, that there's probably a broader audience that could benefit from some of these different perspectives as well. And since they couldn't sit down with us and, you know, sit down at the Cracker Barrel and talk about these things with us, uh, we thought we could, we could uh, you know, engage that larger audience by, by writing the book. Excellent. Can, can, uh, what, why is it not enough to just comply with industry safety standards? Uh, Ken, why don't you start us off with that? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll have a couple of things to share, and I'm sure Tony will as well. As Tony mentioned, it's quite common for organizations to place a great deal of focus on both technology and compliance, uh, what I refer to as systems that are aimed at watch, catch, and punish. And what you realize very quickly is that that's just not enough. It's, and it's not enough because it disengages people from a sense of their own ownership or responsibility for their own safety. Tony, I think you probably had a thought or two to add. Yeah, you know, I, I like to think of uh, things that, that can cause injury as being on a spectrum, you know, <clears throat> whether they're hazards or behaviors or a combination of the two. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have, you have things that can that are kind of low-hanging fruit, and obviously these these will these will result in someone eventually becoming injured, and then you can kind of go up, you know, the scale from there, and uh, you know, there's there's things that uh, you know that, that maybe you're not aware of uh, that you know, are more surprising. So if you think about it on a spectrum like that, compliance really only only addresses those very obvious low-hanging fruit. Uh, that that part of the spectrum where if you had an injury and OSHA came in, they would cite you and say, uh, you know, you violated this, this particular standard. Uh, and so if your whole program based on compliance, you're really only focusing on a very, very small portion of what can get your, what can end up getting your folks injured. Um, so how, uh, how would, uh, you know, if you're a safety leader uh, and you're, you know, you're reading this, like, what, you know, what do they need to do to take their organization's safety to the next level? Um, what's sort of the first first step? Um, Tony, why don't you start us off on that one? Sure. I think the first step is to, you know, if you're looking for excellence in any aspect of your business, whether it's safety or, or you know, production or sales, um, you know, you, you've got to, Obviously, you've got to go beyond what what someone is, you know, just following directions, just doing what someone told you to do. You've got to take ownership of that. And so, um, you know, I think the first step, and it seems intuitive, but if you really look at uh, what a lot of folks do, you know, that their whole system is based on compliance. You know, they probably haven't. If they examine their their uh, their approach, that they they probably haven't really. Um, had a lot of their own thoughts and their own motivations of what they ought to be doing uh, to uh, you know, get that safety excellence. So I would say the first step is to, to say, all right, as far as safety goes, what do I want? What do I expect? Not, it, not uh, what is the minimum that is being compelled of me? Ken, anything to add? No, I think uh, Tony captured it pretty well. This uh, issue of uh, 
certainly you've got to have a robust compliance program, but you can't stop there. You, you've got to move beyond uh, that robust, very good compliance program, move beyond it and, and add to it a sense of individual ownership. The person taking responsibility for keeping themselves safe using the tools and training provided by the organization through the compliance process. Uh, you, that, that kind of goes back to... No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that kind of goes back to the, the spectrum, you know, the, the uh, visual of the, of the spectrum. <clears throat> Obviously, you can't ignore the, the low-hanging fruit, the things that we, you know, established through, through history that are going to get someone hurt, which is the compliance part. I mean, you certainly need to, to, uh, to address that uh, uh, first and foremost, because those are, again, because those are the things that they're absolutely going to, uh, you know, to, to get someone injured. But, you know, obviously there's a lot of room to go beyond that. And that's, that's, what, that's what Ken's talking about, setting that foundation and then going beyond. Um, you, you both have been working, you know, in safety for, you know, decades now. How has uh, organizational safety progressed over the last 40 years? Um, Ken, why don't you start us off? Yeah, you know, if, if you don't mind, Jay, let me offer a, a brief uh, overview. Sure. Uh, the, the, first, the first workers' compensation laws in this country were passed in Wisconsin around 1911. And the last workers' comp law was passed uh, in Mississippi around 1948 or so. And during that period of time, you had fairly steady and consistent decline in the fatality rate in, in industry. And then it continued on through 71 when OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was established. And you might expect that uh, it might even pick up and those fatalities might drop even more dramatically after OSHA and the full, full force of the law was put in place. But actually, the decline was fairly steady from the 1911 up through then. And then in 92, when the National Safety Council kind of recalculated how it was accounting for these fatalities, you might expect another significant drop. But actually, it's fairly steady. And then, following then up through the last 25 years or so, it's kind of flatlined uh, that literally there's not been dramatic change. So where we are today is that law and regulation and technology have given us enormous benefits in safety. But for the last 25 years, the progress has been relatively modest. And we would argue that you have to go beyond the numbers that you might account for through regulation, law, technology, and recognize that what's missing now is the need to remind people, and particularly companies, that when you rely primarily, when you rely primarily and solely on compliance or technology, you unintentionally, and I, I want to emphasize the unintentionality of this, mm -hmm. you unintentionally strip your employees of their single best opportunity to keep themselves safe. And that is their own good judgment. And you do this in the mistaken belief that they play no role in their own safety, that someone else is responsible and will take care of them. 
Certainly the company must do its part. It must create a safe environment, be diligent about looking for hazards and accounting for them. And then it must turn its attention just as intentionally to helping employees take ownership of their own safety to make good decisions that keep them safe. Why? Here's a statistic that uh, has always been kind of eye-popping to me, but we've known it for a long time. Nine out of 10 incidents occur when a member of management is not around. Hmm. Well, logic would tell you that if someone's gonna work safely, that means that that individual employee must choose to work safely. Tony? Yeah, um, I, I, the only thing I would add to that is, uh, and, and I don't know if you chose that uh, time frame of 40 years, uh, you know, uh, on purpose, but it's very close to how long the uh, uh, OSHA uh, uh, standards have been in place. Um, and I think it's interesting to, and I think it's interesting to, to state that, uh, or to think that, uh, that means that the people in the workforce now overwhelmingly have never known a time when compliance wasn't uh, required, but mm -hmm. certainly our grandparents knew a time when it wasn't. And so you have to think, well, what were they doing then? Because if, if what we do primarily today is compliance-based and, you know, to, to the extent that maybe, you know, all of it is, well, then what were, what were the folks that uh, ran these organizations doing before that. So I think that's an interesting concept to think about. And then I would just follow on uh, Ken's uh, comment about the flatlining. What I've seen in industry personally over the years is that, uh, you know, for a while we believed that compliance was going to get us to where we were going and technology, or maybe it was compliance, but, you know, did reduce the, the number of injuries, but we flatlined now. And so now I feel like that there's a, a, a question of there's got to be something else. Uh, you know, a sense that we really can't get to where we want to get to, uh, just focusing on more and more compliance. Um, who would you say your your primary target audience is for this book? Uh, the safety leader. Well, our, our primary target is the decision maker. Mm -hmm. It would be someone in the C-suite, uh, chief executive officers of various kinds, and specifically. Uh, the uh, person, the executive responsible for environmental health and safety, because you need a full commitment to the idea that one, this does not replace compliance. In fact, you must have a robust compliance program for this to sit upon. Uh, and then you must turn your attention without equivocation, without reservation, with full commitment to creating an ownership culture. I think Tony's probably got a thought or two here as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you use the term you know, the safety leader uh, because I would argue that the, the safety leader at an, in an organization needs to be the person in charge, the decision maker. Uh, you can't you can't advocate that responsibility to say you know you have a safety manager, so they're responsible, and so they're the they're the safety leader. As a decision maker, if, if you are not the leader, the, the thought leader, and the opinion leader you know, on safety, then then you've created a uh, a horrible gap in, in your in your system. I mean, do you see that happening though? 
Oh, yes. We, we yes, do see I, it. It's, I, been I, very, it's been very gratifying to see how when a general manager or an executive vice president or uh, a VP, but particularly when you see a general manager uh, assume full responsibility for being that thought leader, the person who expects a robust compliance program and individual ownership. It's absolutely compelling and it's gratifying to see it. Uh, and we, we do see it. Um, you know, you, you go ahead, Tony. Well, I'm sorry. And of course you see it the other way as well. And, um, um, you know, I truly believe that the reason that you see it the other way as well is because when, again, when you look at safety just as compliance, then then obviously you're not an expert on that. You you, you can hire someone who, who does know that, uh, and so you maybe don't feel like you have the role. Uh, you know that 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 isn't your role at that point. Uh, but certainly that's uh, that's an error in judgment. Um, yes, the, uh, the 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 people in the manufacturing uh, facility, say a foundry, for example, must be convinced that the general manager. The safety program is his or her safety program. It's not the safety manager's program. It's it's the it's the program emphasis focus of that particular leader at that particular site and non-negotiable. What are some? I, I know you, obviously you don't want to give away too much from the book, but what are some strategies to kind of uh, I guess convey that message that it's not just about complying with standards. What are you know? What are some sort of ways to get that message across to, you know, to your workers. Tony, you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, well, first, you know, first you've got to, first you've got to believe it yourself as a leader. Um, and, you know, you really have to look in the mirror and see what you, you know, see if you're putting the proper importance on it. We, we start the book out with a, uh, a story a uh, true story um, that that happened uh, that happened to me, or I say happened to me that I was involved in, um, and realize again we're talking about our statistics that that it impacts people, it impacts their families, uh, it impacts their future, and you never really can walk away from that. So that uh, um, the first step is to, to really take a look and make sure that you know, look in the mirror and, and see if you're doing the things that, that you should be doing uh, before you ever go out and look at your folks and say, here's what you need to be doing. So they've got to see it. See, they've got to see the commitment and the behavior in you uh, before you can go out and then expect it of them. And that's really the hardest part. Uh, and it shouldn't be. But, you know, there's only there's only one person you have complete control over, and that's yourself. <clears throat> and yet, the first thing that many leaders try to do is go out and change everybody else first. I would uh, also add to that that uh, you you've got to move away from this idea that this is all about the company's interest. That people have to be given an understanding. And, and there's a process for helping them develop that understanding that the primary reason they should make safe choices is not for, to keep the company's workers' comp costs low. 
But the number one reason they should make uh, good, safe choices is not so the company's operating cost is, is kept low around these issues. But the number one reason they should make safe choices is for the reason they're there. People come through the gate for what their efforts inside the gate buy for the people they care about outside the gate. So you have to help them develop a perspective that helps them remember throughout the day the reason they're there. They're not there first and foremost for the company. They're there first and foremost for how it benefits the people they love and care about outside the gate. Uh, have you seen sort of, or I guess I should, let me rephrase, how should leaders handle you know, sort of the generational differences in the workforce when it comes to safety. I mean, you've got, you know, everywhere from baby boomers who are now, you know, approaching senior citizen age to, you know, you've got your, you know, your Generation X, you've got your millennials, you got, then you've got sort of the younger kids, the Gen Z. It's, you know, obviously very, a lot of differences there. How do you kind of, you know, get those folks to kind of buy into your message and, and work together on it? Well, that's a great question, Jay, and, and uh, speaking as a boomer, uh, most of uh, my cohort is uh, rapidly exiting the workforce, <laughs> so many are choosing to stay, uh, working longer than they might have anticipated, for, usually for the right reasons, but uh, uh, as far as millennials and Zs, and uh, uh, those two generations in particular, represent a great opportunity in terms of developing this kind of ownership culture. For example, millennials and Zs differ from previous generations in very important ways. And one of those important ways is that most of them, the late millennials and the Zs, most of them reached adulthood never having had a significant connection to an authority figure during their lifetime, whether it was a parent, a teacher, a coach, or anyone that might fall in the category of being an authority figure. And the organization that welcomes that young man or young woman into their organization and engages them. And of course, we've known for 50 years that the core characteristic of an effective supervisor is their engagement with the people who report to them. But it's more important than ever that that you invite that young man, that young late millennial see into your organization, and you make a sincere effort to connect with them and send this message and send it very clearly, not just in words, but in behavior. And here's the message. You can build a good life for yourself here. You gotta show up. You gotta make a good faith effort to get along with the people you work with. And you've got to choose to safely do your job. And we're going to teach you how to choose to safely do your job. And the company that engages with late millennials and Zs around that concept, what I'm seeing in my practice is that they're having much better success at attracting and retaining millennials and Zs than others are. That's a big challenge, too, is, is retaining them because, uh, you know, statistics have shown that, you know, folks, younger folks tend to kind of jump from job to job, uh, you know, because there's more opportunity or whatever the reason. Um, so they don't necessarily stick around. So that 
is uh is more of a challenge, I guess, with the younger folks than than with the older ones. Well, Jay, well, Jay, Jay let me offer this. Uh, our research uh, suggests that that may not be as true as uh, is commonly accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for example, uh, I'm a boomer, and uh, both my lived experience and my research tells me that. Boomers were pretty active jumping around, too, when they were young. They settled in a little sooner and therefore look a little more settled because they married earlier, for example. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we all know that nothing sobers you up faster than a mortgage. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, the reality is that, yes, late millennials and Zs are a little more mobile than, than previous generations, but not so much so that they can't be engaged. And here's why. Here's why. Safety beyond the numbers is premised on sound neural behavioral science. And that sound neural and behavioral science is this. All human beings want to be valued. All human beings want to be able to make sense out of things. And all human beings want a sense of purpose. And in the workplace, that means the opportunity to develop pride of workmanship and pride of association. And those things invite people into a world where they are glad to take ownership of the quality of their work as well as good choices about their safety. Tony, anything to add? No. Um... You know, I, I think uh, I think the last what Ken just said uh, matches my experience as well, and that uh, yeah, there's differences with different generations, but basically everybody wants the same thing. Um, yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's been great. Well, Jay, thank you for inviting. Thank you for having us. All right. That wraps up episode 146 of EHS on Tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time. (laughs) 